perfection. to Last Refuge of the Incompetent. I am Gaul. I'm Moses. I'm Ted. Uh, what's this week's theme, Moses? Uh, today we're talking about AI, artificial intelligence. Probably not the Steven Spielberg movie, just the general concept of robots and stuff throughout science fiction. Oh, is that the one with Jude Law? No. I didn't yeah, see it. I, I think he's in that. Uh, a lot of people are. Okay. Uh, it's an odd one. Robin Williams. No, is it's too late. I just said we weren't going to talk about it. Oh yeah, he made like <laughs> he made like the he makes he plays like that sex robot, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought you meant Robin Williams played the sex <laughs> robot. And he, was, he was not. <laughs> we can talk about bicentennial. <laughs> we can, uh, if we want to get Brendan back on the show, he can talk about bicentennial. <laughs> um, Moses, we have a special guest. Who's that guest? Uh, the special guest is my wife, Christine. Christine, would you like to get on the mic? Hello. I am Christine, wife of Moses. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what we said we should do. Uh, In relation to AI, I uh, am currently working as a machine learning scientist at a financial company. And then previously, I had been working on an applied AI team. I can talk about kind of what is actually happening in this marketing term of AI. <laughs> yeah, now it's a buzzword. <laughs> it's a buzzword. It means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Moses, do you have experience with AI as well? Or what, uh, like, I mean, what's I'm your... in, this, in the field of data science. Uh, and so yeah, in, the, in like the, the tech world, AI is just an umbrella term for a bunch of stuff. We can talk about that aspect of it later and the social implications of training models and that kind of thing. But when it comes to robot uprisings, it's, it's kind of totally different. <laughs> so I feel like those are going to be like the two halves of the show. We're going to talk about robots and sci-fi and what that means, and then uh, artificial intelligence, in quotations, the buzzword, and what that means. And the horrible things that it's doing. Yeah, all the things people do. Is, like, are all of our ad stuff, right, That that's like... Is that considered? Yeah, it's all trained on your yeah. Uh, that's online presence and user behavior and that kind of stuff. Yeah, my brother was like one of the first people working on that stuff. So, ah, congratulations! Uh, you, you can blame him for <laughs> <laughs> for all that good things. All right, so let's talk about music. I looked at, at my you know ten years ago when I had a show on KCSB and I did a, a robot themed episode once. So if you want to hear some indie rock from ten years ago, <laughs> I have some songs in there. <laughs> Yeah, I might play a bit from uh, Holly Herndon's most recent album, Proto, which was like co-written using uh, like a songwriting algorithm. Um, There's a few like artists. I think Brian, yeah, did you just, like people make using AI to to write music for them. Some of it's good. Some of it's not good. So that might not go <laughs> into the show. I also found that Byron. Uh, wrote a song called Song for the Luddites, which is the antithesis of of, of robots, I guess. Um, 
and if it's not insufferably bad, we might play it. <laughs> but a fun AI thing I like to do is feed song lyrics into sentiment analysis. Uh, because usually you can get, like, for articles and stuff, sentiment analysis, but songs, lyrics tend to not be, like, just break the AI system, and it's pretty great. It's a totally different syntax. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so, like, does is the tone, like, angry or mm. happy or whatever? Um, confused. Music detected. Too much <laughs> sentiment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hi, you're listening to the podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. If you would like to listen to the full show with all the music kept in, check out our Mixcloud. Go to lastrefugepod.com for more information. Enjoy the rest of the show! Two sad sounds of planes leaving the home. Oh, great. So that was Isaac Asimov, who is the progenitor of our name of our show is that a correct way to did oh, i yeah. use I was this gonna, word gonna joke about yeah our quote the last refuge of the incompetent is a quote from isaac asimov uh, famously a uh, secular humanist and he said violence is the last refuge of the incompetent uh, we're not a show about violence, we're, so I'd like to think that we're really just saying that podcasts are the last movie. <laughs> personally, yeah. Wait, this, uh, is, this isn't a pro-violence show because I've been I've been working under that assumption this entire time. I might have to rethink some things. You just heard him explaining the three laws of robotics, which uh, are fairly famous. Part of his iRobot series of short stories. You yeah. might know iRobot from the fantastic Will Smith film, uh, on which, which is based on it. If anybody heard the click clacking away on their computer, that would be Ted doing Wikipedia <laughs> Corner. <laughs> Look, I don't remember what year iRobot came out, just off the top of my no, head. Uh, no, it's, I think it's important to call out. Ted, do you have a mechanical keyboard or do you just type really hard on <laughs> I type like I mean it. <laughs> First law of robotics, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Second law, a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Quick question, are you saying robot on purpose or... <laughs> Did I say robot? Did I say I robot? Is that how I say it? Play the, play the tape back. <laughs> I was absolutely not saying that on purpose, but that just is how. Listen, I'm not good with words. I'm not very good with words, but I'm not good with them coming out of my mouth the way I want them to. <laughs> that is a beautiful sentence. Yeah. I mean, like, no, not, I'm not being a joke, a joke or a jerk. It, I really it, like that sentence. It's how Zoidberg says robot. <laughs> <laughs> Automatically funny. Uh, it's I probably have... how Asimov said it. <laughs> uh, right? Did we just listen? <laughs> yeah. Um, back back on tape. Asimov, he has a also a book of dirty limericks. It is oh, the yeah. other thing he's really well known for. <laughs> <laughs> Letters limericks. Yeah, I, I highly recommend checking this out. He was a, a armchair limerick enthusiast. Dirty limerick enthusiast. Who was the... Dirty old man, sensuous dirty old yeah, man. In the seventies, this is off topic, but in the seventies, there was a book called the, the Sensuous Woman, 
uh, <laughs> which was about connecting with your sexuality. And then The Sensuous Man also was a companion book. Uh, and Isaac Asimov wrote a parody called The Sensuous Dirty Old Man. <laughs> <laughs> About being a gross old, you know. <laughs> We've read his books. Being a woman, fifty-five. Well, since you guys are the resident Asimov experts, I've dubbed you no, that. I'm not. No, you are. You need to take it. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, do you guys uh, have any examples of? in his works of those laws being used or abused because a lot of those laws were for how they're in- ineffectual, right? How the robots can skirt around them in some ways. Well, yeah, like, yeah. Every story is about how there's a secret contradiction mm-hmm. or, yeah, or ambiguity, an unresolvable ambiguity or some kind of contradiction. And yeah, I feel like in a lot of robot literature, <laughs> this idea of we're making a powerful being, a being that's able to make its own decisions is so powerful it could be dangerous, so we need to put these ethical constraints on it. And then how do you make an ethical code? How do you program that into a computer? It, mm-hmm. it always ends up being like, wait, how do I even define an ethical, ethical code for a person in the first place? How do people deal with ambiguity and contradictions? It's unresolved. And what experiences do you feed in in order to get them to know what is harm so in in reality in machine learning models they're all just learning based off of whatever data you give them a lot of the time that data is very white and very male then when we evaluate the models they won't be evaluated on individual like smaller groups we know a lot of things about like facial recognition and how it's bad for dark skin yeah, and because it won't detect it it won't it was detect only trained on white people Mm-hmm. And it was only trained on lighter skinned people, so so it it, do, it really matters in our we do see really in our real world now how whatever you're feeding into the system really reflects on your results. I think probably the way to fix this is if we like started evaluating all the metrics not just on like the entire group but on subpopulations to make sure that their the precision recall are still good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. For different every single group instead of just like the majority. If the if the society is biased and you just say, oh, a computer will look at it and learn the right thing. No, it's going to learn the same biases that are already present or magnify them. Really, for example, policing. Yeah, uh, there's been mm-hmm. a lot of examples of really bad things happening when you use like police data to feed into machine learning uh, models because machine le- learning models just amplify bias. Yeah, it's been called money laundering for bias. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you, just, you just point to it and say, well, the inscrutable algorithm made the decision, and it can't be wrong. Of course. Data laundering. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, and the, I, I've been thinking about that a lot with, like, police, and then if you had, like, some future, like, and then there's a lot of sci-fi concepts about, like, robotic policing. If you fed our current police data into a robot, you get a racist and robot. <laughs> Oh, I was just going to mention how GPT-3, which just came out recently, it's very easy to make it say racist things, because, like, the corpus of text it's trained on. A generative language model, so it's an algorithm that was fed, I don't know, almost the entire corpus of written language, maybe, and probably some spoken language, too. Probably just written written language, to be honest. I know these corpuses, and they're almost always just written. Yeah, there's no And spoken language is really different. And then, yeah, you can give it a seed of text that you write, and it'll continue writing text, like, based on that. And it comes up with sentences that, like, refer to each other in, you know, long-term ways, like the way a person would talk about a topic. So it is kind of, it's funny to mm-hmm. read it, because it's just on the verge of nonsense that's parsable. But, of course, you give it a gross seed, and it'll tell you gross stuff. <laughs> 
So a lot of the crux of the book Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson is this ship being tasked with writing a narrative history of these people that have been on this ship for 170 years and him navigating human language and trying to figure out how to write a narrative that isn't every single second of every single person's life on that trip. And then by doing that, and he, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson glasses over that he also was fed in some other programming stuff, but by doing that, it helps him kind of come to this realization that he he's alive, or, you know, in some way. <laughs> One of the things that kind of annoys me about a lot of AI fiction is that, you know, the AI characters end up basically thinking like people, and there's never any explanation of why they think like this. You know, a lot of sci-fi, when we're shown aliens, they're basically humans, or basically like humanoid versions of um, other animals because it's just hard for us to imagine things that we have no, we've never been exposed to. And it's probably even harder to imagine minds that aren't like ours. One of the things I like about Aurora so much is that there is a reason for why this artificial intelligence is thinking like us. And it's because it was tasked with making a narrative. The creation of the narrative is ultimately like its consciousness and like emerges through through that process i think it's one one of the more interesting takes on artificial intelligence i've seen in a novel it's it's a really good book i wouldn't suggest reading it if you're tired because it because <laughs> <laughs> it because there's no because it's a it's literally an ai figuring out how to tell a story so in the beginning it's not a very exciting story right <laughs> because he's learning how to be a better storyteller yeah sometimes there's going to be a couple paragraphs that are just meditations on like a metaphor and analogy but uh there's also chapters about the futility of space travel so yeah it's actually really nice. profound yeah it's really cool especially coming especially coming from a, a writer who's most famous i think for the mars trilogy which is all about how you could very e- easily terraform a planet for your own. Yeah, I mean, we've talked, we've talked from the earliest episode of the show about how space travel is kind of almost, it's sort of the faith of science fiction. The Aurora is definitely a book that's kind of critiquing that faith. Yeah, its characters have to just basically choose to abandon this dream of, uh, of space travel and colonization. There's so there's some articles I was reading, you know, MIT Technology Review. There's a lot of people have written about about this stuff. A lot of nerds. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the arguments in this MIT Technology Review by these two, I'm I I didn't look too much into it. They seem like they're almost philosophers, but maybe they're not. Maybe they're actually robotics folks. They were their argument whole argument was that the Asimov's laws don't need to exist because our fears for about robots coming up and destroying us are unfounded. And it, and it comes from like very deep seated things where we're scared of robots because of God, because it's forbidden for humans to act like God. You could think about Frankenstein or the golem, the Jewish golem or Prometheus. And what we fear is not the robots, but the people using the robots against us. Mm-hmm. Which is well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of the robot fiction, like Robopocalypse, if you read, has a point 
where the robot becomes self-aware, and either it's been if it's been programmed with ethics about protecting humans, then it always twists them into, oh, humans are the biggest danger to themselves, so I'll just uh, take control of them. Or either it just immediately identifies humans as a threat to its own existence. But it's always the computer or the AI has to reach the, you know, the singularity level where it becomes so in- inscrutably powerful, so much, so far beyond any human uh, conception. It becomes an unbeatable enemy. The state of computers, and maybe even just the, the inherent nature of computers as we know them today, doesn't really fit in with that. Saying whether or not that's possible really means developing a solid theory of consciousness, and that's also something we don't have. I think also right. this goes back to like kind of the Native Native American white man na- narrative where you have thinking the only way to like keep yourself safe is to like collaboration doesn't exist genocide like mm. you have to completely get rid of this other you have to completely stomp out all reference yeah. and these are all like kind of a lot of these stories are written by like white men who are afraid that any distribution of power will completely lead to them being wiped out which is not true speaking of robopocalypse the second book is robogenesis goes deeper into how man and human or man and robot become one in some sense start to meld together or work together it's the only way there's a new path forward it's not just one or the other i don't read uh science fiction by white men anymore I've <laughs> oh really i've already in my life i think i've like absorbed enough of that one of the things that i worked on for like my first data science project was this project called woke book where it recommended books by authors of demographics you've like read less of mm-hmm. because i just like analyzed the numbers on my own like goodreads and was just like like how much of what i take into my brain is by these white male authors. Yeah, I, that's how I feel about a lot of these sci-fi authors, and that's why I think like the robots, like uprising, is like these, these like the white writer, the white male writers just think if there's anything that gets any kind of power over them, then it's the end of the world. One of the articles I was reading from Scientific American was saying instead of Asimov's laws, you could teach a robot empowerment to pick the best solution for any given scenario, and then also to teach them to maintain human empowerment. But it sounds like, from what you guys were saying, that that is not a very simple thing to do. It sounds like <laughs> how you'd want to teach a child, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's not a simple thing to do. Like, what you put in really matters, like the data you get and where you get it from, and like being able to disaggregate it into different groups, super important. Currently, I think it's going to be the next like big crisis is in in this little world is the fact that like I was reading this book Invisible Women which is about data bias and it's talking about how we use men as the default uh and in the west white men then we collect all this data and then we're like oh this is everyone like we have all of our like pharmacy like pharmaceutical trials done just their first rounds are done just on men because women have hormones which is too confusing <laughs> figuring out structure things to send it in is i think a very interesting problem and then how do you measure equality basically and how do you measure that these things are working yeah the, the, that's the state of you know ai as as the term is used now 
uh, in technology. I, you know, I don't think we're anywhere near what anyone would call a thinking machine. General artificial intelligence has been 40 years away forever. So eventually somebody just decided to rename everything computers do, artificial intelligence. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Basic statistics, yep. linear regression. That's AI, baby. <laughs> But, but I I'm, feel like it's 40 years away if the status quo is maintained. Do you know what I mean? And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to carbon emissions. But mm. I don't – I'm a pest, I'm a very pessimistic person. And so it's hard for me to, to be existing in this world that I exist in now and see that, oh, yeah, we're just going to keep doing what we were doing and exponentially get better. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think both – science fiction about art, artificial intelligence and kind of the imaginative fiction of AI boosters. For both of them, artificial intelligence tends to reflect an ideal of intelligence that's separated from embodiment and want an ideal of technology that's separated from any particular economic or material basis. And in some of the works that we will talk about eventually, I think you see this as well, like who's mining all this stuff for these robots, basically? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, let alone, like, why should something that gets intelligent enough just be able to skip from platform to platform? Yeah, people worry about, you know, an AI that will get loose in the world, but, yeah. like, most of our programs only work on one sort of thing or another sort of thing. <laughs> this, I mean, there's this kind of quasi-theological concept of the singularity where... Yeah, well, it just gets so intelligent that it's more intelligent always, and then it can do whatever, and we can't understand how it will work, so don't even think about it. Speaking of, like, who's going to mine those resources, Aurora does talk a little bit about that in, in some sense, when they're going to this planet and they're thinking to themselves, is it possible for us to even terraform this planet? Is Are we going to be able to get the fuel or the energy needed to, to sustain these robots that are going to do this terraforming? Yeah, but as you said, like in the Mars trilogy, the answer is yes. Like, yeah. they go to Mars <laughs> and robots build stuff for them using exactly. the material there. And it's but that's, not- that's also the beauty of, of writing science fiction is that you get to just come up with fun ideas. You don't, you're not beholden to like. I think in Blade Runner, those ro- a lot of those robots were created for mining purposes, and I'm like, if you're gonna have mining. You don't need them to look like Ryan Gosling. Like, <laughs> you don't need, like, that is not the most efficient miner, is a human-shaped <laughs> robot. Like, yeah, and all these things, they create human-shaped human things, and uh, I think we all know why that would actually happen. Sleep <laughs> only comes to the So, uh, let's talk about Sex with robots. Um, what could go wrong? Talk about you and me. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> it is me, wife of Moses. <laughs> oh, I can't be the sex robot in this, in this relationship? You're right, equality. <laughs> Feminism. Uh, sex robots for ladies. <laughs> uh, all right, I'll, I'll start out with this, because there are plenty of movies about Primarily men falling in love with lady robots. Gal and I in college took a class, a comparative literature class, called <laughs> Makings of the Modern World, and it ended up just being like whatever the professor wanted it to be about. And so we get there on the first day, and the guy says, uh, we're going to talk about robots and consciousness in literature. And Gal and I and like one other person were like, yes! Yeah. And everyone else in the class was like, ugh, sci-fi. <laughs> uh, but a lot of it, like the, the first few things we read 
were early literature about someone who made an automaton shaped like a woman and then immediately falls in love with it. Tomorrow's Eve was one of them. Yes, Tomorrow's Eve. Because it's like he figures out a way to give the robot woman a soul. Yes, the that was the one. The Sandman, and that is about uh, that one's I like that bit the best because uh, the guy builds a, a robot woman, and all she does is say ah ah, like all she yeah. does is say uh huh uh huh, and immediately he's like oh my god she's the perfect woman. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and, and yeah, several of these books say they just uh, the robot is just a blank canvas where the some uh, insecure guy projects all his fantasies. The other one is the the Island of Morel. But that is a weird one because it's about a guy who figured out a way to record the activities of a big party. Not just uh, sound and, and uh, video, but like every uh, holographic recording, like completely recreate. So what is happening on this island is just this party, like a one-day loop of this party and everyone's <laughs> around it. And some guy, a real guy, gets stranded on this island and first he thinks, oh, finally, people. And then he realizes, like, no, it's just like a recording that's playing on a loop. Mm-hmm. Even though he can interact with them and touch them, kind of. And so he's stranded on this island and he just finds one of the ladies at the party to fall in love with. And he <laughs> just observes her up close and sees everything she does. This <sighs> recording of a person. Uh, and says, oh, she's the perfect woman. I think she's starting to notice me. <laughs> it's a, the invention of Morel. The invention yeah, of Morel. There you go, yeah. This goes back to like that Greek myth. Pygmalion, am I right? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where the this dude is like, I'm never gonna fall in love. Girls are stupid. And then Aphrodite is like, he's a sculptor, and she's like, ha, well, I bet you will. And then he sculpts the sculpture, and he's like, this is so perfect. And then Aphrodite makes him fall in love with his sculpture. And I think the main point is that some men can only be in love with something they control completely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's men un- unable to see women as people. <laughs> on, the, on a more contemporary level, we've got her, Ex Machina, Westworld. Sex with robots is a thing that keeps keeps on giving in literature and film. <laughs> uh, although Ex Machina, Machina, the robot, gets her revenge in the end. And in Westworld. And, I mean, kind of in her. I, <laughs> that movie is very ambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so another general theme that I was thinking about was, wait, am I a robot? This whole idea yeah, of you know? <laughs> consciousness and what it means to be human. And like Moses was saying, we read we read Descartes, we read Turing, yeah, the Turing test class. in this college class. And, you know, this whole idea of what does it really mean to be human and, and sentient or conscious? Yeah, what it... What is thinking versus just machinations? One of my favorite Turing tests, like ways of beating it, apparently, is to just have your computer act like a real jerk who's refusing to answer questions to be difficult. And that's the most human behavior. And that's the most human behavior, <laughs> which they can't distinguish. Like they can't tell if. My point is that test can be kind of imperfect, but I like that solution. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's another, I mean, that's a reason for the one sentence not to really be connected with the other, because you're refusing to take someone seriously or engage constructively with them. So the start of 
chatbots when you would like I am what with this AM one? Uh, Emily was an early chatbot. There was there was a just <laughs> I would a, mostly just repeat what you said back. The one that ended up they ended up using for like therapy tools because apparently people are really willing to open up to a robot. And I was just thinking that there's a lot of people that get fooled. People that aren't as savvy, I would say, on the internet that that could potentially get fooled by by a, a chatbot. So one of the things I love about data from Star Trek is that I don't I mean I don't know if this is intentional or not, but I think he kind of operates as sort of a a running joke about Descartianism mm. because he's always so concerned with becoming a real person and being more human and having feelings. But the entire time he's worrying about it, he obviously is having feelings like Mm -hmm. his desire to have emotions is like the clearest evidence that he already has them which i think kind of works on this as a commentary on this tradition of like separating thought from action and embodiment when like it's like it's right in front of your face that no it's it's already there like if it's happening then it exists there's no like separate kind of ideal conscious sphere it would be on top of it. The third theme is, oh crap, we shouldn't have built these robots. And I think we kind of talked a little bit about that. When we get into Robopocalypse, which you can assume is probably just yeah. based on the title, is not, <laughs> not, not great. Terminator and Hal from 2001 Space Odyssey. Good old Hal. A lot of, like, what Asimov was writing about. This idea that we built these things and now they are taken over. Battlestar Galacta is also about a, you know, a race of robots created by humans, and then as soon as they get enough intelligence, they resent their creators. It's like, you jerks. We hate you now. I, I hate you, Dad! Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. It's yeah. because, like, oh, you built us in your image, but uh, we have the ability to sense all kinds of stuff, not just the, the merest slice of the visible spectrum that humans can see. Circling back to this theme about having sex with robots, it, it, it brings up also this whole idea of consent. If you're assuming that this creature you are building to just have sex with, at what point does it get to say yes or no, right? And at what point is it an ethical thing that you're doing? It's like a real life question that's happening because they are being built. People are using sex robots and... I don't know. I I I I'm I don't have a clear like I mean obviously in like Westworld or Ex Machina like no good, right? But Buffy Bot. The Buffy Bot, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, for real. Uh, the Spike Spike builds a sex robot based on Buffy and she's not super psyched about that. I mean, I, would you if you found out somebody no. had built yeah. But I'm sure celebrities now are probably have a sex dolls in their image like that's got that's uncomfortable like that's something you should have to consent to but yeah i don't know i I don't have a good solution on how you what point does a robot need to meet to consent well yeah i mean that's like our vibrators cool yeah of course (laughs) right right uh, so-called smart vibrators do not actually possess intelligence or consciousness yeah i mean mean, that's the deal like at one point does it that's the question of all these robot things. Is mm-hmm. When does a machine uh, actually achieve 
consciousness? When does it become, instead of just something, uh, a mechanical rule-following algorithm machine, where is the transition between that and something that has consciousness? How do we define consciousness or free will or sentience. I mean, consent is important because ignoring it or violating it is violating someone's subjectivity, their free will, their interior experience. And like, you don't need consent from your vacuum cleaner to use it (laughs) to clean a floor because we assume they don't have any of those things. Consent doesn't, it's not important and it's not even like a relevant concept when you don't have those things. So you assume a robot, you don't need consent from a robot until it is conscious in some way. But right. if you don't understand consciousness, it may get that before you realize it. And then you've been violating its consent without knowing it. Also, if it's so smart, it should be able to tell you it's conscious. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, maybe I mean, maybe it's a vacuum and it doesn't have the ability to speak, right? <laughs> yeah. And that guy... I don't think this show should take an official position. Yeah, well, I, don't, I don't care. If, I don't care if you're having sex with your back Don't do it. <laughs> Why should a machine consciousness be recognizable to us as being like ours? I mean, you can point to like robots that were predicted, Jetsons made, and now we have little Roombas going around, or you know, sassy Roombas. Yeah, really sassy Roombas. And I think there's a Doctor Who episode with a robot dog that beats its master in chess, and you know, IBM Deep Blue did that. So I think some of the more like AI on the surface seeming things are Siri or Alexa. You know, this ability to to converse in a human language is definitely a way to fool the Turing test in some sense. And Hal in 2001 Space Odyssey was this prediction that a a computer would be able to interact with you in your language. Seamlessly. Yeah, but I think the thing with Siri and Alexa is I think that a lot of people don't notice anymore how much we change the way we speak to speak to interact with a Siri or an Alexa. Conversational AI is still really hard, mainly because a lot of our like corpuses are written language, not spoken language. The spoken language we do have is kind of spoken in a kind of newscastery to- tone, you know, like it's gonna right, be most of the transcripts out there are just from T V. Yeah. So it's gonna be like what are on those things already and I a couple of years ago, I was working on an AI drive through project. Instead of talking to a human, when you go through a drive through you're going to talk to an AI. And it was hard. Like, if you're trying to order, like, can I have a burger and a chicken sandwich and put mustard on the second one? That's something hard for a computer to parse. Surprisingly hard and surprisingly easy for a human to parse. But then, in testing, we had different people come in and try to talk to it. The speech patterns we mainly trained on were white, rich Americans, aka the people who were kind of working on this. One of my coworkers was like, if we have to program Ebonics into this thing, I'm going to just blow up. I was just like, man, we absolutely should because who we want everyone to be able to use this product. But well, my no my corpus on that. Yeah, my parents, when they, <laughs> my parents have accents and I don't, they're not, they're not even thick accents. Like they're, they yeah. speak English very, very well. And uh, when they speak to like Siri, it's, it's a total crap show. Like it doesn't, it, it's, it's, I don't know what you're saying, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm and speaking in English. 
Yeah. Also, I mean, there's a certain number of things that Siri and Alexa do do automatically, but they're like Alexa is also backed up by a whole bunch of humans in a room somewhere who will like look things up and feed them back. Like well, it's that's, not entirely automated. Um, that's there's fine. a lot there's, of human labor behind it. There's a TikTok, like viral TikTok guy, and he's he's a very handsome, very sweet um, Irish man, and lives with his family in Ireland, and he's very thick uh, accent. And his whole thing is he he'll talk to Alexa, and he'll do like, and it'll he'll be like, play this song, and and she'll figure it out, and like it's pretty impressive. It might also be staged, but it's good. <laughs> it's also, it, it is based though on like who they choose to train on. Cause like there's two separate problems here. There's the like voice to text and that's like what accents they choose to train on matter. And right. then there is the text to something you feed into the computer to command. And that's like the, what we call natural language processing. That's been the less solved problem. Mm. Yeah. Syntax is difficult. Yeah. I know you were mentioning the whole idea of AI, artificial intelligence, is used incorrectly now. It's like a buzzword. Certain factions uh, who are more engineering are like, do not use the term AI. Like, this is mm. not AI, that's just a marketing term. And then some ter- some people who are a little bit more like trying to market our roles, they're like, throw the word AI as often as you can in there. <laughs> when I think of artificial intelligence, I think of, you know... I think of Isaac Asimov. Yeah, well, I, yeah. do, I don't personally, but that's that's good for you. But like that—that's the kind of thing I think of. Like Battlestar Galactica is like you know something that can totally converse as a human. Yeah, human intelligence. Human but intelligence, not made out of meat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unmeaning. Oh, what was that really good meat story? <laughs> yeah, so there, there was some short story, and I maybe we'll look it up and post it. It was, it was I think it was in, in N.K. Jemison or like a oh, yeah. collection that she was in it was charge a, of. It was a, a best sci-fi of the year a few years ago, edited by N.K. Jemison. This is a story that's in a, a best of the year sci-fi collection, and it's about a group of robots who escape in a spaceship, uh, and their ship starts breaking down. The only parts they have to repair the ship are... Uh, organs from the former human crew. <laughs> and so they keep making st- uh, making these things and then suddenly it starts to smell like barbecue so they decide to open up a cafe and one of the robots gets obsessed with making food that actually tastes good for humans. So they don't have taste receptors. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I think of when I think of artificial intelligence. <laughs> the meat ship of Theseus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's it. What? I want to make food that tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in, in the tech industry, AI just means a, a black box where you can dump in a bunch of data and try and make a prediction and you don't care how you get it mm. or how bad it is. Well, I mean... You want it to be good. You want it to be good, but it, it ends up being evaluated on totally biased metrics. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the, I mean, the advances in machine learning in the last decade or two are genuinely impressive for what they are they're yeah, the, just not the, artificial intelligence no, in the yeah, sense that the closest things are uh vision recognition so driving cars they need to be able to process a video and identify what are the objects and various facets of that but yeah i wouldn't call that intelligence so just call it, you just need to train on billions of images of the world like the mm-hmm. same way a human would learn it you'd have to look at it What's the deal with, the, is it the Boston Mechanics robot that everybody's freaking out? The, Boston the, Dynamics? Boston Dynamics, yeah. The, that, that robot is scary. <laughs> the one that can jump 
and <laughs> crush your feeble brain in its in its giant yeah. hand. So that, I mean, that's an incredible <laughs> advance in robotics in a specific sense of designing armatures that can move around and learn how to move. Well, I think, so, you know, that this whole idea of y- you shouldn't fear the robot takeover, you should fear what humans are going to make with robots, and, you know, yes. they're already making death machines, you know, our wars are fought yeah, with drones. drones. But even a semi-autonomous weapons platform that, you know, can make decisions about whether to fire on its own doesn't understand concepts, it just follows yeah. rules based on input. Yeah, well, it's on the, us as a society to make, you know, rules that don't murder people. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, we'll do that with a rock and a, and a, and another rock, so <laughs> I don't, I don't think we need The a, opening to 2001. Yeah, exactly. Murder So let's pivot a little bit to this whole idea of the reality of AI. And and, and I think, you know, our future is pretty grim. I'm sorry to say that. And a lot of it has to do with with climate change. And and AI has got a pretty significant carbon footprint problem. Uh, Well, we've been talking about machine learning. And, you know, they... All of these learning models basically work by being fed huge data sets, running things over and over and over again, and that takes a lot of computing power, uh, which often means basically renting time on cloud computing servers that you know Amazon, particularly Amazon, but also a few other big companies own. Um, and as more and more models are being made, fed on more and more data sets, um, they use more and more electricity. We read one article talking about GPT-2 versus GPT-3, these two like natural mm-hmm. language models, and 3 use like orders of magnitude more processing power to learn. I mean, we're, we're in a situation where generally energy consumption cannot keep going up exponentially, and uh, machine learning is an area where it absolutely is definitely right now. Because it's fueled by capitalism and the research is... Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But the research is... (laughs) Yeah, uh, Christine and I are both professionals in this field. uh, We get paid for our work. Capitalism. (laughs) uh, Yeah, we've both seen how different companies have this budget. Yeah, their, their, their machine learning budget, their compute budget, and especially for the bigger companies, Google and AWS or Amazon, you know, throw a, f- a few thousand more on yeah. there and, and just see, see what we get. The wider problem is that electricity, like the economic cost of electricity doesn't account for the ecological costs. That includes everything mm-hmm. the internet is on and, and all machine learning and modeling, but also includes almost every other piece of electricity we use in the world. <laughs> If I get to be in charge of solving this, I would just make it much more, like, electricity more expensive, making this more expensive, because the one thing that my team has been, like, responsive to and being like, oh, yeah, we really need to optimize our clusters is when they say, like, oh, you're hitting your budget. So I think that that is probably going to be the best solution, because 
it does cost more money to train bigger models. I think there are more efficient ways. Not everything is optimized right now. If you try to make things more efficient, there's more efficient ways to train things. Different kind of Monte Carlo approximations is a good way that we've cut down on a lot of computing time. Right, but if you have indefinite resources, you're just going to keep going at it. Yeah, If it's cheaper to just have it train on more machines than it is to pay me as a programmer to make it more efficient... They're going to mm-hmm. do that. Yeah, right. there's, it removes the incentive to optimize. Yeah, exactly. So they're like, like at my work, I think I've heard your time is worth this much and the computer time is worth this much. <laughs> and that's what we are thinking about. And I mean, you have a huge amount of venture capital flowing to tech companies that are building models that learn to do things that maybe we don't need computers to do. But there's this <laughs> a possibility that it will create value. Yeah. <laughs> down there's the road one, there's this one startup that is trying to you know the, their mission statement starts as you know there's a lot of bias in the the tech interview the interviewing process it's no good so let's just solve it with ai <laughs> oh, uh, God. so solve it with an already thing that we're going to buy exactly their, their whole pitch is uh we'll take video of the interviewer uh as they answer these automated questions and then we'll parse we'll parse the the video for like expression and sentiment and their text also for expression and sentiment, uh, and then we'll just be able to class them classify that person as good for your team or bad good for your team. Good fit or bad fit. So <laughs> I mean, that's the stupidest match with your current team, which is the opposite of diversity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, and also just like, they're already coming at this with this idea that there is this inherent bias in interviews, and yet they can't yeah. see that there is an inherent <laughs> bias in programming. It's like I mean, insane. Yeah. Yes, but, but this way it'll be a consistent bias. <laughs> <laughs> just It's just a ridiculous, I see it again and again where they think that, especially in tech interviewing, something I'm very interested in because it is a very like white and Asian and male field and it gets just whiter as you go into higher positions. How do you bring in diverse people and make them feel comfortable and how do you get them through the interview process? And, and yeah, AI is not the answer. AI is not the answer is making it more human. Yeah, exactly. I've I've seen several AI kind of recruiting things and they all have this kind of uh, problem. And there was one that like scraped all your social media profiles oh, like no. Which was really horrible. The book that we're going to highlight this week is Robopocalypse. We mentioned it two episodes back when we were doing our representations episode. Daniel H. Wilson is the writer. He's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And he's also a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon. And he wrote this book called... Robopocalypse. I have a back cover synopsis. I can read it if anybody wants me to. In the near future, at a moment no one will notice, all the dazzling technology that runs our world will unite and turn against us. Taking on the persona of a shy human boy, a childlike but massively powerful artificial intelligence known as Arcos comes online and assumes control over the global network of machines that regulate everything from transportation to utilities, defense, and communication. 
In the month leading up to this, sporadic glitches are noticed by a handful of unconnected humans. A single mother is disconcerted by her daughter's menacing smart toys, a lonely Japanese bachelor who is victimized by his domestic robot companion, an isolated U.S. soldier who witnesses a pacification unit go haywire. But most are unaware of the growing rebellion until it is too late. When the robot war ignites, at a moment known later as Zero Hour, humankind will be both decimated and possibly, for the first time in history, united. And there's a second book called Robogenesis as well, which I will not give you the synopsis for because it is a major spoiler to the first book. Sure. Like, throughout the book, the villains are often people who are striving for, like, purity and, like, are against mixing of cultures mm-hmm. and, like, human and machine. But also, like, there's a lot of pretty broad stereotypes. Like, the Japanese character is, like, a man who's obsessed with technology and can't look people in the face who becomes emperor because, you know, Japan just needs an emperor. Um, <laughs> um, and the Russians are, you know... Like, scientists and, like, hard scrabble janitors who drink a lot of vodka. It is broad strokes, and it's not, like, necessarily a book that's about the... It doesn't really go in-depth about humanity. It does... It really goes in-depth about what could happen. Could robots do this? Is it possible? And especially even in the second book, it goes even more theoretical about what could happen with a robot uprising. The, The book itself is all about if this robot uprising happens where the whole goal is to destroy humanity, what theoretically could survive and what about humanity could survive. And so his thesis or, you know, the crux of the book is that the Osage nation, because it's so large, because it, the the infrastructure already exists there of governance outside of the American, about the, of the U.S. government system. There's already, like, a governance system there, and because they... And also that they had been, you know, excluded from access yeah. to the high technology. Yeah, and they have, like, doctors, and they have, like, people there that, that are Osage and that would go return back to the Osage nation is one of the reasons why um, they're able to survive. And then they're also the, the main characters, the main heroes are... Our native. Yeah, in a lot of ways, the book is a very traditional robot up- uprising apocalypse. Uh-huh. And yeah. also in terms of most humans die. What about the response, though? Because, like, obviously in a robot uprising, you have a robot uprising, but the response... Yeah, is- yeah, and so in this book, the response is led by the people who were... They were like, we've done this. Were, yeah, and they were is- they had been isolated from the mainstream society. I, mean, I think most of the, especially going to the second book, the most interesting parts are more about the hybridization of people and technology and yeah. less about the artificial intelligence. The artificial minds are kind of one-dimensional, and again, there's no reason for them either. There's no convincing reason that they want to kill humanity or why they think and talk like us. Yeah, the AI's motivation is it immediately sees that, oh, life is beautiful and complex and precious, and humans are the greatest threat to life. Right, right. We just have to take down the humans, preserve a few of them for, you know, for uh, records, as make a zoo out of them. Later, another artificial intelligence, who turns out to be the real villain, um, (laughs) trained basically on snippets of different people's lives, and it fails to, like, integrate these different lives, and it makes it insane. And then it wants to destroy all life, but that's a second book, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just why would that follow? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of like space in like the world of fiction about artificial intelligence 
for artificial intelligences that make are like failures and so they make like weird decisions that we can't really understand rather than just defaulting to want to kill it wanting to kill us there's that third ai that weird inexplicable ancient one this is in the second book that is making these hybridized biological robots mm-hmm. it's more of an attempt to like imagine an artificial intelligence that kind of completely escapes from computers we're like told that it thinks completely different than us but it's pretty much just represented as being written in italics. Um, <laughs> and this isn't necessarily a criticism of Daniel Wilson in particular as an author, because most or all authors like don't achieve imagining a consciousness that's totally different from ours and do have to default to just like telling us without showing us that it's different. And, you know, there's the robots who become self-conscious and... Basically, they think that they think that like us, but occasionally they say like affirmative or query <laughs> before their sentences to show that they're robots. Um, yeah. Wait, that's not normal. <laughs> you guys mentioned that short story uh, or story about the robots like using human meat to repair a ship, and yeah. it made me think. I know Moses, you didn't read the second book, but the second book is like more very speculative about what could what could happen with AI and robotics and it's all about it's what I could tell like ancient AI that somehow escaped that's living in the ocean and making um making hybridized like making robots that are built that are made from biologicals. I don't think it's ancient. I think it's supposed to be the first model of the uh, one It that- is yeah, but it just, the way it comes about, it's like, why is this first yeah. model this, like, godlike creature? I'll go ahead and assume without reading it that it's uh, developed by the ancient Atlanteans. <laughs> <laughs> I think the way they explain it in the book is, like, the earlier versions of the AI, they didn't train it on human models, so they don't think like humans, which is, I think, an interesting bit. It just He still has to put words in the mouth of this AI, and it talks like us, just in italics. And it's also, like, very obviously the second book in a trilogy that hasn't been finished yet, so it's hard Mm. to say, like, where he's going to take some of these ideas. It's also a good scary book if people are into more horror-y sides of of sci-fi. It's definitely the second book more so than the first. You're just uncomfortable the whole way through. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of gruesome stuff in it. And, like... Hideous war crimes. Uh, Robo apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's you can read it. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good book. It's fun. Oh yeah, it's a page turner yeah. for sure. Yeah. Quick reminder. If you want to hear the full show, just go to lastrefugepod.com and all the information that you need will be there. Or Google Mixcloud, Last Refuge of the Incompetent, and you can find it if you want.
Welcome back, people, to the end of this episode. I wanted to say thank you, Christine. That was kind of amazing. Thanks for being here. Now everyone knows that my wife is much funnier and cooler than me. <laughs> Built me, though. No, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, so uh, what's our our next week's theme is... is uh, because this this pandemic is never ending, we're gonna we're gonna do it. We're gonna talk yeah, pandemics. Of, uh, <laughs> pandemic, virological futures, zombies, contagion in general. Probably yeah. including the film contagion. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Some twelve monkeys stuff, things like that. Yeah, the Omega okay. Man. Tune in, you'll see. And then um, check our website. We'll link to anything, any of the articles that we talked about. Uh, website is lastrefugepod.com. And Moses, what's our email? Our email is the last refuge of the incompetent at gmail.com. That's the last refuge, not just a last refuge. And the voicemail mm-hmm. line? It's uh, 805-253-3091. 805-253-3091. Please leave us a voicemail. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a rift in the incompetent uh how uh, crew household <laughs> my husband said that we shouldn't be incompetents we should be incompetents and i told him that i would um that i would bring that up on this episode <laughs> so if you have an opinion i don't like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't think there's a rift here i think this is better <laughs> <laughs> yeah so either way sweet dreams yeah incompetents that's what you're on sweet dreams incompetents Thanks.